0: Oh my! Oh boy! Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. You know what I got going through my head right now? I, I see like this short, brown, shaggy-haired guy uh, sporting a uh, jean jacket with a red backpack. He's got some Walkman earphones on, he's riding on a skateboard behind this uh, blue Jeep Wrangler past a a bunch of women who are uh, in aerobics clothes, they're waving at him, and he goes past this sign that says, welcome to the city of Hill Valley. Uh, Some of you are well aware of that movie because you either watched it in the theaters back in the summer of 1985, or uh, perhaps you're not quite that old, and maybe there was a VHS tape that was laying around your house, or a a DVD, or perhaps you caught it on on Netflix or some other streaming uh, service, but that's the uh, title song from the iconic 1980s blockbuster called Back to the Future, which featured the song The Power of Love. It was the first hit by Huey Lewis and the News. And uh, back in the summer of 1985, uh, I-, I remember this like it was yesterday. Uh, the movie w- was playing at the Twin Eric, uh, the Eric 1 and 2 theaters, which was down here on, on Darish Street. It was beside a-, a place called the Gingerbread Man. The, the building now is uh, where the Gingerbread Man now is Smart. And uh, I had uh, taken uh, my then brand new fiance Kathy Notre Angelo, Uh, out to uh, the movies and then ultimately dinner and we heard for the very first time you don't need money, don't take fame, don't need no credit card to ride this train. It's strong and it's sudden and it's cruel sometimes but it might just save your life. That's the power of love. That's the power of love and over the last 40 years I am certain that I have heard that song more than hundreds of times, probably thousands of times. And uh, every time that I hear it, it reminds me of that date night long ago with Kathy and how powerful my love was for her and how much more powerful my love is for her now. But it also reminds me of something else. You see, back then in 1985, that summer, I had only been a Christian for uh, a couple of, of years. And uh, so my faith was pretty fresh to me at the time. And, and now after 40 years or nearly 40 years of following Christ, that song reminds me of the power of Christ's love for me and his desire for me to show the power of that love to other people. And that power of love, more specifically, the the power of Christian love, that's what we're going to talk about uh, this morning as we continue our study through the book of Romans. So uh, let's get started. If you have a Bible with you, a Bible app on your phone, we're going to Romans 12, starting in verse 9, going through verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the, the tables around the room. Perhaps someone will pass one down to you or feel free to get up and take one. And uh, once you have located uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 9, if you would please stand in honor of God's word, if you were able. Romans <clears throat> chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. Let love be genuine. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, two weeks ago, I told you that we have now made this transition from uh, the beginning portion of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, which was was particularly theological, and now we're we're making our way to, to the much more practical portion of his uh, text that he is or this letter that he has written. And I shared with you that Romans chapter 9, or 12, verses 1 and 2, they provide a summary of that practical portion of Scripture. And it only calls us to live lives of overwhelming gratitude to God, which manifests itself in overwhelming obedience to God. And this morning, what we are going to discover is that in order to live in obedience to God, we must actively demonstrate his love in our lives. And it's not a love as the world defines it, but it is love the way that God defines it. And in the verses that we just read, we're going to find that there are several uh, truths about Christian love. I'm going to give them to you right up front. You can write them down. They'll be up here on the big screen if you would like. Uh, and they're this. Christian love is genuine. It's genuine. It's the real thing. Number two, Christian love is is moral. It distinguishes between right and wrong. Number three, Christian love is is other-focused. It's always looking out for the other person. Number four, Christian love, and you know this, is hard work. It does not come easily. And finally, number five, Christian love is generous. It gives very freely. So we're going to just kind of work our way through the passage here, look at each one of these, starting out with the whole idea that Christian love is genuine. And it starts out, and that's exactly what it says, let love be genuine. And this whole idea, let love be genuine, is, is is the overriding or the overarching theme for these verses that we have just looked at. Now, it's important to understand the kind of love that the Apostle Paul is speaking of. In English, we have one word for love, and it's love. But in the Greek language, there are a number of words for love. There's four primary. I think there's a total of seven, if I'm not mistaken. But the four primary ones, which some of you have probably heard of, are are this. The first one is, is storge. And that's familial love. This is the the, the love that a a husband has for his wife, the wife has for the husband, that parents have for their kids, that that kids have for their parents and grandparents. It's familial love. The second one is phileo. That's where we get the word Philadelphia from, the city of brotherly love. And, And this is love for friends. This is kind of friendship love And basically what phileo love is, it's storge love, it's familial familial love that you extend to to another person who's not actually part of your family. You might call them brother or sister, even though they're not your brother and sister. And then there is a, a, a word that doesn't occur in the New Testament, but that was all through ancient Greek literature, and it's the word for love called eros. That's sexual, it's romantic love, it's where we get the English word erotic from. And then finally is the love that the Apostle Paul is using here at the beginning of verse 9, and it's agape love. And agape love is the highest love that is ever used in the Bible. It is a love that is everlasting. It's a love that is sacrificial. It is a love that, that gives even when that love is not reciprocated back to us. And it's the perfect love that is shown by God towards us and the love that God expects us his children to give to one another. And the self-sacrificing love, it's to be genuine, sincere from the very depth of our heart. And the actual Greek word that has been translated genuine uh, is on hypocritos, which means not hypocritical. That's the word. It's a love that's strong. It's a love that is not afraid to tell the truth, It's a love that encourages and challenges. It's a love that never, ever fails. And it's it's, this lasting love, it's a love that, that doesn't cut and run when things get hard, when the diagnosis isn't what we hoped for. Agape love stands true. When the miscarriage occurs, when the court case doesn't go our way, when when dreams lay shattered, uh, when money is tight, when the job doesn't work out, when sin rears its ugly head in our relationship, when failures disappoint, when the casket contains the lifeless body of our loved one. It's a love that rejoices with those who rejoice and grieves with those who grieve. That's the kind of love that we're talking about right now. And it is a love that Christian author Natasha Crane defines in her book Faithfully Different this way. She says this, Christian love wants for others what God wants for them, even when it's not what they want for themselves. That's the kind of love that we're talking about today. And it's this genuine love, one that is far different than our our secular culture. Because our secular culture basically says, I want for you what you want for you. Regardless of whether it's going to destroy your life or not, I want to affirm you because that's what we do. But Christian love comes along and says, no, I want for you what God wants for you. Even if it's not what you want for yourself. You see, our culture's love is a false love. It's a cheap imitation, a love which cheers people on even as they foolishly and tragically engage in all kinds of sinful behavior, which at a minimum brings them great hurt and at most destroys them and those around them. And it's a cheap imitation that believes that that love is affirming whatever life choice someone embraces, regardless of how destructive that might be. I beg you, don't settle for that cheap imitation. It will always, always disappoint. And as we continue through these verses, Paul, he builds upon this fundamental truth that Christian love is genuine, and he tells us that Christian love is also moral. Look again at verses Uh, Chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Now, for something to be moral or for someone to be moral, what it means is that you have to be able to make a distinction between that which is right and that which is wrong. And that's exactly what Christian love does. And the first thing that it does is, is it abhors evil. And because Christian love is a reflection of God's love, Christian love is a holy love. And it demands that that we are set apart from evil. And this word abhor is particularly strong. It means to hate exceedingly. So if you and I are going to genuinely love people, it demands that we exceedingly hate evil. Now, this is a challenge for many of us because we are surrounded by evil. It's absolutely everywhere. And sometimes we fail to recognize evil for what it is, and other times we have been so uh, accustomed to the evil that, that we just kind of accept it as, as normative. And at best, we turn a blind eye to it. At worst, we actually happily indulge in it. Now, I could come up with Pastor Mike's list of things that are evil, but I think it'd be a lot better to see what God says is actually evil. So I brought up two particular passages uh, that give us a list of things that God considers that are evil. We'll start in Galatians. It says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, if that's not enough, the Apostle Paul writes to the, the folks living in Colossae, he says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, and these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice. Slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, these lists, they, they contain what we typically categorize as the big sins and the little sins. And the big sins you know, he starts out, I think it's very interesting. the first sin that he lists in both cases is what? Sexual immorality. That, that is the, a, a catch-all word for any type of sexual activity outside of a covenant relationship between one man and one woman in a monogamous marriage. Anything else is sexual immorality. But he continues, he says, not only are that, is that, we think that's a big one, but also idolatry, sorceries, or, or, orgies, excuse me, uh, and then we look at what we would consider our small sins. Things like, uh, a little bit of strife, not that big a deal. Yeah, I'm jealous occasionally. Yeah, who's really worried about that? Yeah, I've got a little bit of envy going on, but it's not that bad of a thing. Yeah, I do get angry sometimes, but get over it. Uh, obscene talk, lying, those are small ones. And while we try to differentiate them, The fact of the matter is God doesn't. Sin is sin to God. Cheat on your spouse, lie on your taxes. Both of them, apart from Jesus, they send you to hell. That's the way that they work because God is, is holy. But we're also not only called to abhor what is evil, we're supposed to cling to that which is good. So what are some things that God actually considers good? Well, you can go right back to the scriptures and here in Colossians, Paul tells us, he says, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds together everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful but do we actually cling to those things are those things really really important to us do we enthusiastically embrace compassion and kindness and humility and and, and meekness and, and patience are those things that are important in our lives do we patiently bear with one another, even those people who are completely unbearable? Do we do that? Do we graciously forgive others, fully realizing that we have been graciously forgiven by God? Now, before we move on, I want to remind you that, that, that we're called to do both of these things. We're called to abhor evil and to cling fast to that which is good. But so many times we we tend towards one or or the other, and I've noticed that uh, in the life of our church family, especially in the chaos of the last couple years. And uh, this became very evident to me because people in general, and Christians in particular, they're very selective about that which they abhor and that which they Im- approve of or embrace. And hopefully you've worn your steel-toed boots today because I'm gonna start stepping on toes like crazy. And I just recognize that, and, and, I wanna, I, and I, I'm not trying to be coy here at all, but I'm completely okay with that. You need to know that, okay? So, I mean, I, I don't mind emails. I'm happy to talk with people. But, but I will still sleep okay. I will still have to get up multiple times in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. That's a completely different story. But I will sleep absolutely fine tonight. So let me tell you how this plays out. I know certain Christians who were appalled and outspoken about the riots that followed the killing of George Floyd who at the same time, at best, didn't say a word about the U.S. Capitol riots on January 6th, or at worst, tried to justify those who ran into the Capitol. I know people like that. People who were appalled by all the violence in the cities, and then turned a blind eye to what happened at the Capitol. And some of you are like, yeah, Pastor Mike, you tell them. (laughs) Others are like, yeah, Mike, you probably shouldn't have moved the offering till after the sermon. You probably should have done that before. But I'm not done. I also know other Christians who were furious about the US Capitol riots. And they did everything that they possibly could to justify the inner city riots that followed the killing of George Floyd. How can that be? How can one be horrific and the other be okay? Well, brothers and sisters, it can't be. We can't have things both ways. If we're going to be intellectually honest, and if we're going to be biblically honest, if one riot is wrong, another riot is wrong. Listen to what God says in Proverbs 17, 15. When I first read this a couple years ago, my, my mind was blown. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike. An abomination to the Lord. Now, last I checked, being an abomination to the Lord, not a good place to be. And that is why Christian love abhors what is evil and clings to that which is good. Okay, let's move on. Christian love is also other-focused, especially towards other Christians. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. First, Paul tells us that we're to love one another with brotherly affection. And it's very interesting what, what's happening here uh, in this particular sentence because what he's doing is he's mashing a bunch of Greek words together, to, uh, uh, Greek words for love together in order to get the idea across. And, and so that what is translated love here in the beginning of, of verse 10 is the Greek word is phylostorge. So he's taken familial love, okay, love for family, and then love for your friends, and he's, he's mashed them together. It, 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 uh, basically, it's, you, you have this love for, this is a very strong love, that's not only for your family, but it's also for, for these people who are your friends. And he mashes it together. And then he adds on brotherly affection, which is translated philo. And basically what this means is that as Christians, we are to love one another, Like brothers and sisters, like actual brothers and sisters. You see, Pastor Paul, he he is a Christian, but he's also my brother. Miss Grace is a Christian, but she's also my sister. And the question becomes do we actually look at the people that are sitting around us right now in that way? Are they really, truly our brothers and sisters? Do do we see them that way? And if we do, that should radically change the way that we deal with one another. Because it should work the way your family actually works. And I know some of us have families that are messed up. But we, we know what it looks like. All of us understand what it means to be accepted and loved and cared for in a family, even if we haven't really experienced it. And this should change the way that we view church. Let me give you an example. Back to the pandemic. A couple of months ago, Pastor Ben was slated to preach. And he called me on a Saturday and he said, Pastor Mike, I feel terrible my sermon's done. There's no way that I'm going to be able to preach. Can you preach my sermon? And, and, and Pastor Ben has done that with, with me, okay? And, and basically, you can take that which is marginal and lift it up by Ben taking my stuff and preaching, okay? But me taking Pastor Ben's stuff and trying to pull that off is not happening, all right? Just, just It was not going to work. My intellectual level is not where Pastor Ben's intellectual level is. For, for fun... He studies Jewish evangelism to Jewish people. He takes a class on this thing, all right. You know, I'm at home watching videos of people landing airplanes on aircraft carriers, all right. That's the difference that's going on here. So I'm like, Pastor Ben, I can't preach your message, but I can preach. And and to be just perfectly honest with you, this was like at nine o'clock in the morning. I had a bunch of stuff planned for the day. I'm thinking like, Lord, I really do not want to. Like, you know, I've been looking forward to doing this stuff. And so I just said to Kath, you know what, hon? I'm just going to go in there. I'm going to do what I know. We're going to John chapter 4, and I'm just going to preach something I preached hundreds of times before. And and so I did that. But this is one of the things that I said in that message. I said that as I was reflecting on our church family during uh, the pandemic, that I discovered that there were three groups of people in living water. Some of you will remember uh, what I said. I said that there there was one group of people in living water, between 10 and 15% of of folks, who were very conservative politically, very conservative socially, and probably, I I don't want to use the word conservatively, theologically, because that takes us places where I'm not intending to go right now, but, but very conservative politically and socially. And then I said there was a second group that was also represented by about 10 or 15% of people uh, in our church family who, who were, were, were very liberal or progressive politically and socially. And at some point during the pandemic and all the racial strife, members of both of those groups left and they have not come back. They're gone. Probably never going to come back. Now, why is that? Now, now people will give you lots of different reasons, but I believe if we're really honest, if we really cut to the chase, people's, and love is a strong word, but I'm going to use it, people's love for their political views and their social views were more important to them than their love for people in the body of Christ here. That's just, that's just and it's not, and, and, and folks, th- these are good people. They're people who, who, who I still love, who I still care about. So, so don't misunderstand me. But what happened here is when you're so entrenched in, in one of those two things, and when that world gets, gets shocked, you you can't possibly figure out figure how can i i relate to this other person they believe things completely contrary to what i believe and 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 it's just this this uh dichotomy the the this tension whatever it is is i just can't Stay here. And then there's the balance of you. It's the 70, 80% that are sitting in this room here, that will be here tomorrow or to later on today, last night, who are on the live stream right now, who decided they're going to slug it out, who determined, you know what, I may not agree with, with everything this person over here thinks, pointing to Pat, uh, <laughs> but I still love them. And I'm gonna still, I'm gonna to try to understand where they're coming from. And, and and there is something greater. This thing called the gospel that that, that eclipses all of this. Politics and social stuff, it's passing away. When when the king comes back on the white horse and the clouds open up, okay, and he comes back. All right, all this political social stuff, it's history. It's gone. And if you think about this, what people, you guys really said is, you know what? You're family. And I'm not about to leave my family. And isn't that the way that families actually work? Now, you need to understand. I come from a very small family. I, I mean, the, the, the Leonzu family, it, it's within 10 feet of me right here. That's, this is it, right here. It's me, my mom, and dad. All right, my dad had a brother and sister. Uh, you know, and I, we had grandma and grandpa, and my mom had two sisters, and, and we were close, but it was really the gang of three here. I mean, that was just kind of the reality of it. And, and then, uh, on April Fool's Day, 1983, Kathy and I went out on our very first date, which in and of itself is kind of humorous that it was April Fool's Day, and in the process, uh, I was welcomed into this enormous Italian family. If you saw the 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 Greek wedding or whatever that thing was called, all right? It was, that was me with them and even with the little old lady dressed in black, okay? We even had Aunt Tzitzi Rose or whatever it was. That was us. And I get welcomed into this huge Italian family. And what I discovered over the years is that I don't necessarily always agree with all of my extended family members they don't all hold my political views. They don't all hold my social views. They don't all hold my religious views. I mean, in the beginning, I was persona non grata. I'm the Protestant guy, the Christian guy, showing up into a completely Italian Catholic family, taking their, their daughter away, telling them we're not going to get married in the Catholic church. Don't ever say that, it does not go well. We ended up, by the way, getting married in the Catholic Church, just to let you know that. <laughs> I had a pastor. We went to get counseling about, should we you know get married in the Catholic Church or not. We went to the, the uh, chaplain at Grove City College where Kathy and I went. His name was Dr. Morlidge, uh, just this super-godly guy, pastored, you know, 2,000 kids or whatever was at Grove City. Dr. Morlidge is like. Yeah, you guys just get married in the Catholic Church, then do whatever you want. And we walk out of there. I'm like, what a sellout! He doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> Dr. Morley, God rest his soul, he was right. <laughs> and you know, some of them in my extended family have lifestyles and values that are incredibly different than mine but they are still family. And you couldn't drag me away from them with wild horses. I have an extended family member who who is gay. And he's had a, a, a steady boyfriend for the last 20 years. I love those two men with all of my heart. I love them. I don't necessarily agree with them, but they're at my home. When they come in, they get a big hug, a kiss on the cheek. When they leave, they get a big hug, kiss on the cheek. I have fun with them, but I don't necessarily agree with them. But I love them, and that's what, what this, this love of God is talking about here. It, it means we love one another with brotherly affection. It means that our, our love for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is so powerful that it eclipses all of our political and social beliefs. It, it doesn't mean that, that, that you put God's word to the side or anything like that. We'll talk about that in just a couple moments. It doesn't mean you stop doing truth, but it means that, that you share the truth in love. When you get pushed back, you, you, you push back in a loving way, and at the end of the day, it's okay to agree to disagree because I'm confident in God's word. Now, what about the second sentence in verse 10? It says this, I'll do one another in showing honor. You see, Christian love means to put others first. Philippians chapter 2 is a great place to look at this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also in the interest of others. We're to look at other people And Evan touched on this a little bit last week. We're to look at other people and not put ourselves lower. But we're to lift them up instead. We don't have to get lower. We can stay where we're at, but we're called to lift other people up. And the reason we do that is because every person is created in the image of God. And that makes every person extraordinarily valuable. And because people are extraordinarily valuable, we are to treat them that way. We are to treat every person there is with extraordinary worth. And see, the genuine Christian love sees the value and worth of every person. From the unborn in his mother's womb, to the four-year-old that is living in the slums of Venezuela, To the 14-year-old girl who is rebelling against her parents. To the 20-year-old college student who's struggling against the shackles of racism. Or the single parent who's working so hard just to make ends meet. To the Down syndrome guy that's the greeter at Walmart. To the transgendered individual who surrendered to gender dysphoria rather than fighting against it. To the businesswoman who's leading a Fortune 200 company, or the homeless vet who's struggling in the streets, to the elderly parent who's living in the nearby senior apartments, or the great-grandma who's experiencing full-blown Alzheimer's, cannot eat, cannot swallow, and is in the final days of their life under hospice care. Every person is created in the image of God. And brothers and sisters, we would do very well to remember that. And as such, we are to show them love and respect in biblically appropriate. And I I was very careful with those words. We're to show them love and respect in very biblically appropriate ways because Christian love is always other-focused. And if that sounds like hard work, it is. It's not easy. Living like this is not easy. And verses 11 and 12 tell us that. Paul continues, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. You see, living in community, it's it's hard. We've got great unity on our staff right now. But it's still hard at times. We get on each other's nerves. It's hard. But we love one another. And loving in a genuine, non hypocritical manner is hard. Loving others based on Christian morality, abhorring evil, clinging to good, crazy hard. Considering others better than ourselves, that's not natural for us. It's hard. And when things get hard, the natural tendency is to give up. And Paul gives us six very brief commands. That will help us persevere in the midst of the hard work of Christian love. The first is do not be slothful in zeal. Now I find it very interesting that the ESV editors they, they, they translate uh, the Greek word that, that means lazy into slothful. I, I mean, yeah, in order to be slothful, you gotta know what a sloth is. Sloths are, are creatures that, that are indigenous only to Central America jungles and South American jungles. Like two-thirds of the world have no clue what a sloth is. But they use that. Couldn't they have just said, you know, that that, that we just shouldn't be lazy? So what Paul is saying here is that we're not to be lazy in our zeal, in our passion for others. Our natural tendency is to be lazy. We have to put that aside. Number two, we're to be fervent in spirit. The idea is that we allow God's spirit, the Holy Spirit that's inside of us, to light us on fire in order to show genuine love to other people. The third one is this. Serve the Lord. Seems very obvious. Why would he even need to put that in there? I believe there's a reason why it's in Well, obviously there's a reason why that's in there. But my feeble mind comes up with this idea. Okay, My thought is Paul is there and he's reminding us of something that Jesus said about when we serve others, we serve him. Look at Matthew chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come to you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. For I was hungry As you did it to one of these, the least of my brothers, you did it to me. You see, what a great motivation to persevere in the midst of love because when we are actively loving others, we are actively loving God. Another way that we can persevere is we rejoice in hope. Now, in the midst of our relationships, we need to remember that God is at work. Not everybody is lovable. Not everybody is kind. Not everybody is going to respond very well to our love. And God knows that. And God is ultimately the only one that can change the heart of the other person. Our job is to simply, well, simply, I shouldn't our job is to love the person. Our job is not to change the person. It's God's job to change the person. Our love is to love the person in a genuine way. God's job is is to, to work in that person's life so that they might be changed. And we can remember this, that God is faithful. We can be confident that he is working even when we don't see it. Even when it's not going the way that we think, God has got a plan. It's bigger than anything that we can possibly imagine. And, and even when we can't see things, if we keep pressing on, that's the very definition of hope. It's being confident what? in what? And the things that we actually can't see. And then we're told to be patient in tribulation. You see, inevitably in any relationship, there is going to be trials, troubles, struggles. And I mentioned some of those struggles when I talked about the people who left our church family over the course of the last two years because of their political and social convictions, didn't align with that of our leadership team. Uh, you know, they they, they struggled with, with decisions that were made, and I mean, just when you cut right to the chase about some of this stuff, some people looked and thought, hey, we took the, the pandemic too seriously. Other people looked at it and said, you know what, you're not taking the pandemic seriously enough. Others told us that you're spending too much time dealing with racial issues. And others say, you're not spending enough time dealing with racial issues. It was, it was a no-win situation. And as I said, some of the folks who left are some of of Kathy and my closest friends. And it's been hard because in the process, you get misunderstood. In the process, you get misrepresented. At times, you even get mistreated. But what I've learned over the last two years is that we need to be patient in tribulation because we need to keep loving because God is at work. And what's so wonderful is that, that in a couple of these folks, God has not restored them to living water, but has at least restored them to Kathy and I. Our relationship isn't completely destroyed, and I'm so incredibly grateful for that. that and, and, and thanks be, my, my wife, she is a rock star in the midst of this, because in me, it's kind of like, just write it off. I'm tired. And Kathy's like, no, Mike, don't stay in there, slug it out, slug it out. I am so grateful that that she would would do that because it was hard at times. Last encouragement that Paul gives us is this, that we are to to be constant in prayer in order to persevere in love. We need unyielding prayer as we strive to love, uh, love God and others. It's the lifeblood of the Christian life. If we don't pray, we're never truly able to love. And this is hard for me, and it probably is hard for many of you. I mean, to, to think about praying without end, ceaselessly, that, that, that's hard to even wrap your head around. But God, it's like, be thinking of me all the time. It's not, you know, get on your knees and don't ever get up. I mean, there's a place to be on your knees. That's an important thing. But there's times like, okay, God, I'm going into this situation. I need you right now to be thinking about him all of the time. Final truth, Christian love is generous. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This verse pretty much speaks for itself, so I'm only going to give you a few comments. Uh, Contribute to the needs of the saint means that when fellow Christian brothers or sisters have a need, we're to help them. But this is what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we need to satisfy the entire need. It also doesn't mean that we need to contribute to their wants. But it does mean that if we're truly living a Christian life of love, we are to get involved. Now let me explain it. We run this compassion fund that you generously give to. Each year, we get like $90,000 from our church family to be able to bless other people. Most of the folks are outside of our church family. Some of the people are inside of our church family. But what we have learned in the process of doing all of this stuff, that, that, that you can help people and in the process hurt people. And there are times when you have to say no. And so a lot of times, when someone has a need... And, and, and we, we can pretty much, with $90,000, you can pretty much satisfy any need there is on the face of the planet. Well, not any need on the face of the planet. You can't help Elon Musk by uh, Twitter. That's not enough money there. But for what comes through the door, you can solve a lot of problems. But typically, we limit to about $300 folks outside of our church family, folks inside of our church family. It's whatever it takes kind of thing. But there have been times where we've had to say, Enough is enough. We've helped you multiple times. It's time to stand on your own feet. It's time to press forward. There are sometimes people come in the door and, and, and they don't really have a need, they have a want. Now, we're not here to satisfy wants. We're here to satisfy needs. And, and as much as that needs to work at living water, it, it needs to work in our own lives. Because God brings people across our paths. We need to figure out what we're to do with that. Because in John, First John, we read this, and, and this is serious business. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother and sister in need, not in want, indeed yet closes his heart against him or her, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You see, if, if we want to know if God's love is inside of us, you open up your checkbook, you open up your calendar, and you can very quickly find out, well, maybe that's, that's an old illustration. Anybody, the checkbooks, you guys familiar with that thing? Yeah, you, you look on the ledger on your phone or whatever, your, uh, your SnapTwit feed or whatever it's called. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> but how we use our money and our time that God has entrusted us reveals how much we really love God. That's the reality of it. It is, and it's hard. It is hard. And then it says, seek to show hospitality, which means that we open our homes and our schedules to others. And whether we have the gift of hospitality is really inconsequential here. I, and he's not saying, if you have the gift of hospitality, show hospitality. He's saying, show hospitality. We're commanded to do this. And, and, and seek is the key word here. It says, seek to show hospitality. It means you need to do it. It doesn't mean people are going to respond. You might invite someone over for dinner to your house. They may say no. Don't get ticked off. It's okay. You, you did the seeking. They did the rejecting. You want to be a seeker, not a rejecter. That was my best little Seinfeld thing that I could do right there. It also doesn't mean that people are going to return the hospitality. If you are inviting someone into your home or taking them out, with the intent that they need to reciprocate, the motives are completely wrong. Because the reality is they may not be able to reciprocate. And that's okay. But we're called to do the best that we possibly can. And and having someone over for dinner or or dessert doesn't take more than a willing heart. Who cares if your kitchen's a wreck? Just, you know, make sure they're not going to get food poisoning. That's the main thing to be concerned about, right? But it's okay. The place can be messed up. It doesn't, I, I mean, you know, here at Living Water, you got my office, which is spotless. You got Pastor Paul's office, disaster zone. That's why he's in the back and I'm in the front, you know? That's why we do these things. Conclusion, what's the bottom line? Christian love is always an action, never a feeling, always an action. And how does this work? Well, for God to so love the world that He gave, right? He didn't feel, He gave. He didn't give words, He didn't give from His surplus, He gave us His best, He gave us His Son. And when we look at the love of God's Son, Jesus, for us, what do we see? We see the very things we have just talked about. That Jesus' love for us was genuine. He didn't just kind of pretend that he loved us and then dump us along the way. He went the distance. He goes to the cross. His love for us was was moral. He, He leaves the glory of heaven, comes to earth, tempted in every way, chooses the right stuff, rejects the wrong stuff, his entire life, all of it. His love for us is other-focused. I mean, who wouldn't want to stay in heaven? If I got golden streets, angels, choirs, no tears, no crying, no weeping, no gnashing of teeth, or I get the earth, what am I going to pick? Jesus looks at the stink. He looks at the mess. I mean, we got, what, 250 people in the room probably right now. 200 people, whatever. You just take all of our mess together. He looks at it and he says, yeah, I'll take it. I want that. I'll deal with all the junk that's there. I'm going to leave all of this behind. And why does he do it? He does it so that he can live the life that we were called to live, die the death we, we deserve, and rise again conquering sin and death once and for all. And Jesus' love for us, it was hard work. Getting rejected all the time, getting beaten, betrayed by your best friend, whipped with, with stones impregnated into the, the whip, hooks impregnated into it so it rips the flesh from your body, dragging your own cross to your execution site, having people spit on you along the way. They strip you naked, hang you from a cross, crown of thorns on your head, shove a sword in your side. Hard. doesn't get harder than that. And it was generous. He gave everything. Held nothing back for you, for me, for anyone else who will repent of their sins and receive him as Lord and Savior. As Christ followers, we know exactly what Christian love looks like. We can read about it. Yes, that's important. But we have experienced it. We know what love looked like because we know how incredibly unlovable we were before love showed up at our doorstep. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this time. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for these folks who are attentive. Thank you for the folks who are at home. Pray for them, dear God. And Lord, I humbly ask that you would make this a place of people who love greatly. Lord, would you help us, Heavenly Father, to to have love that is genuine and love that is is moral, that distinguishes right from wrong, dear God. Would you help us to have a love that is other-focused when we want to just focus on ourselves and a love, Heavenly Father. Uh, Would you help us to love even when it's hard? And in the midst of that hardness, Lord, might we be more and more generous each and every day. Lord, thank you for the many in this church family who show that love on a regular basis. Encourage them. For those who struggle with it, Heavenly Father, would you, your spirit speak deep into their hearts? And now, Lord, as we prepare to take this offering, Lord God, would you multiply it? Or would you meet the needs of this church family? Thank you for the generosity of those who give online, who give through the mail give in person for those who, Heavenly Father, who desire to give and struggle to give. Would you empower them, dear Jesus, and help us, Lord, as leaders of the church to be very, very faithful with these resources. And it's through your son's name we pray. Amen. Just stand as we prepare to, oh, no, stay as we collect the offering.